Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a lunch and learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. Tonight marks the start of Yom Yerushalayim, the day Jerusalem was reunified in 1967. So the topic for today's class is the miracle of Jerusalem and the Six-Day War. So, without further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. City of Gold, I thought I would talk to you about Yushalayim Shel Zahav um, because of tonight being um, Yom Yushalayim. Tonight we celebrate, and the world, the Jewish world, Really, the whole world, I think, celebrates the uh, reunification of Jerusalem back in 1967. That happened um, tonight and tomorrow. Welcome, everyone, for joining and for coming on. I'm very, very excited. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks back, we had a whole session about the Six-Day War. Uh, I remember because I was up in Hunter, and it was a beautiful day outside. It was snowy out, but it was warm enough for me to teach from the outside. And then I went through all of the details of the Six-Day War. So I'm not going to bore you with that, although I will just say it's one of the most incredible moments in Jewish history ever and uh, should not ever be forgotten. And I will be making reference to it a little tomorrow in my Parsha discussion. I'll be giving a Parsha class online as we always do, Erev Shabbat on Friday, which I'm looking forward to tomorrow. We're actually beginning, what are we beginning tomorrow? Sefer Bamidbar, we're beginning a new uh, book of the fourth book of the five books of Moses. So that is going to be tomorrow, and I'm really looking forward um, to uh, uh, sharing some great Torah in honor of Shabbat with you tomorrow. The question is, why was it so important for us in 1967 to come back to Jerusalem. If you remember, I was telling a story about Menachem Begin, and Menachem Begin was the um, uh, member of Knesset at the time. He was not the prime minister of the state of Israel during the Six-Day War, that was Levi Ashkol, but he was the one, Menachem Begin was the one who really pushed hard for uh, the Jewish people to take the old city and to reunify Jerusalem. If you remember, in 1947, when uh, the United Nations partitioned Israel, gave a peace to the Jews and a peace to the Palestinians. Um, East Jerusalem was not part of the equation, at least for the Jews. So for 19 years, from 1948 to 1967, Jerusalem was in the hands of the Jordanians. And we got it back. And people went wild. Literally, the Jewish world went crazy. So many things happened positively um, because of that um, great moment in history. The question I wanted to raise to you, in, and I'm going to try to answer it in a spiritual sense, why was that so important to get Yerushalayim back? What's so important about Jerusalem? Why couldn't Menachem Begin sleep when he thought that the United Nations was going to impose a ceasefire and we would still be without Yerushalayim being reunified? Why did he phone the Prime Minister at 4 a.m. and push him to meet with the Knesset and, and, and to get his colleagues to take the notion seriously that they should seize the opportunity to get Jerusalem back? Why were so many young IDF soldiers, religious and secular alike, willing to give their lives? Okay, good. Um, we're back. I think we lost a couple of customers during this. 
Wonderful words always. Thank you, David. Welcome back. Isaac Galina. Hey, Isaac, how are you, man? Nathaniel Berman. And Liesl, pleasure. Great to have you back with us, Liesl. Um, I did freeze, Amy. I did freeze. It was some sort of bad wireless connection. Okay, we got everyone back here. So, is it, you know, when, when you get to the Kotel, and every year when we bring MJE, we bring our group to the Kotel, and we tell everyone it's going to feel so amazing, and it usually is for people. Now, is it just because there's a whole psychological buildup and hype, or is there something really going on at that wall? Something mystical, something magical, something spiritual. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, Jerusalem is just a city, and the Kotel is just a wall. And yet almost every year without fail, it is that moment when we get to the wall that when people reflect on when they return from the MG trip to Israel that they speak about as being the most transformational, the most magical. Either when they first see Jerusalem, uh, we go to Mount Scopus where Hebrew U is, and we look at Yushalayim, or they stand at the wall and they feel the stones and they're praying there. What is it? So I want to learn a couple of sources with you to understand the power of Yerushalayim. Number one, on the surface, there's a certain reality. There's a certain national reality for the Jewish people. And the easiest time, I think, to feel that is Friday night. Think back the last time you were at the Kotel on a Friday night. And I remember we always looked down from the Merpeset where I studied in Yeshiva Nativ Aryeh, which is a beautiful yeshiva in the old city. And you can look down while literally thousands and thousands of Jews of all different colors, uh, like about 10,000 Jews are there on Friday night, wearing white, black, or green. Ultra-Orthodox for the black, white for the modern Orthodox, and green for the army uh, guys. There's a feeling of national unity and inspiration. Okay, so that's on the surface. Let's go a little deeper. And to explain what that something deeper is, we need to take a step back and understand what was before in this place, in Yerushalayim. What was before in Jerusalem and specifically in the era of Yerushalayim on the Temple Mount? I'm going to take you back to the very beginning of creation. The very creation of the world is said to have emanated from Jerusalem and specifically the Temple Mount and specifically a certain part of the Temple Mount, what's called in Hebrew the Evan. Hashasiah, the foundation stone, which is the bedrock in Jerusalem and is in the center of the Temple Mount. The Talmud calls it the foundation stone because it was the very physical point where we believe God began the creation of the world. And it's one of the core beliefs of Judaism that creation began, A, at a single point in time, and B, at a single place. And that place was the Temple Mount. And that place was in Yerushalayim. Adam, his sons Cain and Abel, and their descendants Noah, when they all brought offerings and sacrifices to God, Temple Mount. Abraham, the first Jew, was told to take his beloved son Isaac upon the altar. Where did it take place? Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. Isaac first meets Rebekah after Eliezer brings her back from the north. Where was it? In Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, where they first met. And according to tradition, by the way, Isaac was praying the afternoon service. And so Mincha, as well as Shacharitz by Abraham, were both instituted in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons we continue to pray facing Jerusalem, 
my bookcase right behind me here. When we pray, we come into this room, when we daven, we face this direction, it's east. When Rebecca was initially unable to have children, our, our matriarch, where did Isaac go to pray? He went to Yushalayim, to Har Maria, to the Temple Mount to pray for a child. And then when Rebecca became pregnant with Jacob and with Esav and couldn't understand the unusual activity in her womb, she came to Jerusalem where the Academy of Shame took place. It was the first yeshiva to seek advice from Shame, who was a very wise scholar and a great believer in God. Yaakov, Jacob, was drawn to the same academy in Jerusalem. And the famous dream, you've seen a lot of art, I'm sure, in Judaico over the years of Jacob's ladder. Jacob is, is, um, is sleeping and he's resting. And there's this ladder extending from the ground to the heavens and the angels are going up and down the ladder. That dream took place on the Temple Mount on Har Maria. In fact, the stone that Jacob was resting his head on is believed by our sages to be that same stone, the Evan Hashasiah, the foundation stone from which all prophecy is said to emanate. It's actually in the dome of the rock shrine. Um, not the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is that big gold thing that you can see in Jerusalem. Uh, you're not supposed to go in there, but if you were to be in there, um, you would see a, a big, big stone in the middle. And that is the belief, not only of Jews, but Muslims, that that was the foundation stone from which the world emanated. So Jerusalem has great history spiritually, from the very creation of the world and with all of our biblical patriarchs and matriarchs. And this explains why Joseph, why Jacob, when he got up from that dream, Jacob was having this dream, he was running away from Esav, and he laid his head down to rest. And that night he said, Surely there is a God in this place. And I didn't even know. And he became frightened and he said, How awesome is this place? How awesome is this place? And take a look at your handouts. It's the third source on the handout where it says Genesis chapter 23, chapter 28, excuse me, verse 16 and 17. Pasuk, Tetvav, and, uh, and Yud Zayin, excuse me, Tet uh, Zayin and Yud Zayin, uh, Genesis Chene, Ch Genu, uh, chapter 28, 16, 17, source number three, Jacob awoke from his sleep. He said, surely God is present, and I didn't know. He became frightened. He said, how awesome is this place? He sensed that where he was, there was something special and awesome. He says, there is none other than the, this is none other than the home of God, and this is the gates the gate of heaven. Rashi tells us, what does that mean, Vanochli that I didn't know? He didn't realize, he says, Makom that this is a place of prayer, from where prayers ascend to the heaven. The Ramban, the great Nachmanides, writes that it's the site of the temple. That's where Jacob was resting his head. That's where Jacob realized something special was going on. And this is the gate through which prayers and sacrifice ascend to the heaven. The Ramban says, and I quote, and this is amazing. I don't know if you've seen any of the great superhero. What was the great um, 
What's the movie where um, this is what happens when you teach a class and you're talking to a screen? Guys, help me out here. What was the movie um, where all the different superheroes come together? Avengers. The Avengers. Thank you. Okay, so so the Avengers. You remember there's this one place where the bad guys come from outer space and they come down and the only way that the people, the Avengers can access, they have to get to this portal. It looks like a little tornado, right? And in a sense, that's the way Rashi and Ramban are explaining the Temple Mount. It's the place on earth from where prayers ascend to the heavens. It's the connecting place between the physical and the spiritual worlds. And it seems that the place itself was also conducive to prophecy, which is why in that place, the Ark of the Holy of Holies would be stationed right on that spot. I'm getting some of this information from the late and great Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan, who wrote that the temple and the Ark in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, which is the holiest part that the high priest would only go once a year, would be stationed right on that spot. God commands the Jewish people to build a temple on that spot, which the Jewish people then do centuries later. And the purpose of that temple, which was made clear when God first commands the Jews, he says, Make for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell in it. Turn the page to page number two for your source sheet. I have the Ramban there, that this is the temple, which is a gate through which prayers and offerings ascend to heaven. Svarno, great Italian Jewish philosopher, wrote, If I had realized the special distinction of this site, this is Jacob, I would have prepared myself mentally for receiving these divine insights. And that's why God commands the Jewish people to build the sanctuary and then the temple in that very spot. And interestingly, always remember this, it says, Vasuli Mikdash, make for me a sanctuary, God says to the Jews, V'shechanti v'tocham, and I will dwell in you. The point of the sanctuary is for us to have a relationship with Hashem. These places are very, very important, but it's ultimately about our connection with God. Now, the temple that stood on that place contained the Mizbeach, upon which sacrifices were brought. There was an inner chamber called the Heichal, which included the menorah that was lit every day. It had the Mizbeach HaZahav, the golden um, altar for incense burning. It had the Shulchan, the special table with the showbreads on it. And if you pass that chamber, you would then enter the Holy of Holies, the focal point of the temple. Only person allowed in there was the high priest on one day of the year, Yom Kippur. And in the center of the Holy of the Holies was the Ark, was made of wood, covered by gold. On top there were these two gold cherubs through which God's voice could be heard. That's how Moses received prophecy. He would come and God would speak between the cherubs. In the Ark, you had the two tablets. The two tablets that had the, with the Ten Commandments and the original Torah that Moses himself wrote before he died. We believe that Moses wrote 13 Torah scrolls, gave one to each tribe, 12 tribes, and then the 13th uh, was resting against the Ark itself. The two temples stood for approximately a thousand years, during which time Jews would come from all over the world to Jerusalem, and the people could see this, and they knew they were in close proximity to these sacred objects. When Solomon built the temple, he also built a labyrinth under the temple where the holy vessels could be stored in, which is where many people still believe those vessels are today. The Talmud in the Tractate of Yuma spells out the difference between the first temple 
and the second temple, because we know that only the first temple had the um, the Luchot, uh, excuse me, the Aron, the Ark of the Covenant. The second temple did not have the Ark of the Covenant. Take a look at source number five on your handout. The Rambam, um, the great Maimonides said, I'm going to read it in the English. Look at number five, guys, the second page of the handout. Beautiful group we have on. Hey, welcome, Nicole. Welcome, Kaylee and uh, Eddie. Who else came on? Avi Strauss. Scott Shapiro, the Avengers. Thank you, my friend. Okay, Joseph. There was a stone in the west side of the inner sanctum on which the ark rested, and in front of it was the jar of manna and Aaron's staff. Moses actually kept some of the last manna that fell from the heavens and preserved it in a jar. That was also kept there in the temple. Aaron's staff was also kept there. When Solomon built the temple and knew that it would eventually be destroyed, he built a place to hide the ark below the temple mount in a very deep and inaccessible hiding place. This is the Rambam, Maimonides speaking. And King Yeshaya ordered the ark hidden in that place that Solomon built. <coughs> Excuse me. As it says, and he said to the Levites who taught all of Israel, who were holy unto God, place the holy ark in the place where Solomon, son of King David of Israel, built for it. You have no burden on your shoulders, now serve your God, etc. Aaron's staff, the jar of manna, and the anointing oil, special oil that was used to anoint the priests, were all hidden with it. None of these returned in the second temple. All of those things only existed in the first temple, not the second temple. And so these sacred objects, we believe, remain hidden in a vault deep under the temple mount. And as the Rambam says, Yeshayahu hid the ark in that chamber. And there's no reason for us to believe that it's gone. It was never brought up to the second temple. Now, our proximity to these sacred objects, suggests Reb Aryeh Kaplan, has a profound impact on us spiritually. And that is one possibility that I want to suggest. And I discussed this with my dear friend, Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. We were talking about this years ago. Maybe that's what we're feeling when we get to the wall. When you get to the Kotel and you're standing at the wall and you're feeling something. Now, it could be a lot of this psychology and emotion. We know about all the history that took place and we know how hard it was to get the, the, the Temple Mount back. And this is the last remaining wall from our temple. But some believe that because you're in close physical proximity to these holy things, to the Ark of the Covenant, which we believe is still buried there, to the Jar of Mana, to Aaron's staff, to all of these special things, that that's what some people are experiencing and picking up on. We're also aware of the fact that we are experiencing, we're standing where Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all brought offerings to God. And to take a little quick break, I want to thank Jill for... Bringing in lunch, you are the best. Thank you so, so much. Uh, we haven't done this in a while. When we first started Lunch and Learn, when Corona first broke out, that's what happened. We were young and idealistic, and Jill was making lunch and bringing me washing opportunities. And then, you know, life sets in. You're married a couple of years. Get your own lunch. No, I'm just kidding. Didn't happen that way. Just want to thank Jill for everything she does for MGE and for me and the Jewish people, and we're going to wash now. Um, look at the washing, look at the washing 
Uh, the washing towel is actually very, very nice. Oh, look at that. It's got Jerusalem on the washing towel. How appropriate. Um, why did the mana not rot if it was completely consumed? If it was not completely consumed? That's a great question. Eddie, you, you, the, the, the man actually was meant to rot. It could only last for a certain period of time. Uh, that's a very, very important lesson that we learned from the man. Um, because uh, we were, I think, one of the lessons of the man is that we were learning to become reliant on God. I'll wash in a second. Um, and therefore, God didn't want us to sort of save it. You know, we all have savings accounts. Some of us are dipping into our savings during Corona. Right? God wanted the Jewish people to become reliant on Hashem. So they literally could only eat what, what dropped from the heavens. And then they'd have to wait for the next day. That's how Hashem helped us develop a faith in Him. Um, so I don't know how it preserved some kind of miracle that it preserved in that jar. Uh, we're going to wash. We used to get a larger bowl, but, you know, budget cuts, you know. Grilled cheese. What's better than grilled cheese? It's so simple yet profound. You just take two pieces of bread, slap a piece of cheese in between, put it on the frying pan, you're good to go. It's one of the great miracles of modernity. Um, okay. This is very tempting. The only thing I have to drink here is what I was drinking last night when I taught. But since it's a little early in the day, I'm not going to do it. All right. Um, so anyway, the other reason, the other reason for, welcome Jonathan Schwartz. The other reason that perhaps we are feeling something special when we're standing at the Koto is because we're also standing where Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all brought offerings to God. And the Six-Day War basically gave us all this back where the temple once stood and where the temple remains are still buried, we believe. But it's even deeper. Where's our handout? I just got a little disheveled and disorganized. Hold on a second. You guys have the handout? Because I just lost... Oh, here it is. All right, I got grilled cheese and water over everything. It's a little of a mess here. Um, so it's deeper than this. Because I think it's more than simply being where our ancestors connected to God and, or being in close proximity to the temple vessels. It's also about being in a place where something special still exists today. What is still special that exists today in Jerusalem, specifically at the Temple Mount? Now, there's a certain dichotomy in Jewish thought, and I want to share this with you. It was very relevant to talking about Yushalayim. On one hand, we believe certain places are invested with certain with Kedusha, with sanctity, with holiness. And yet we also believe God is everywhere. And we believe God is accessible anywhere. And, you know, um, hey, welcome Eddie Zarabi. Pleasure to have you, my friend. So, when God comes to Moses at the burning bush, 
he tells Moses to take his shoes off because the land upon which he is standing is holy. The Chafetz Chaim, one of the great rabbis of the 1800s, wrote that God's message is that everywhere you are in life exists the potential for holiness. Moses was just walking around in a random place shepherding his flock. And God says, take off your shoes because every place has the potential for being holy. So although God's glory fills the whole world, there's a very famous Pasuk verse in the Tehillim, La Hashem Ha'aretzim La'ah, there are places that we can access that Kedusha, that holiness, in a more powerful way. Why? Why is that if I go to certain places, I can feel and experience more holiness than not? I mean, this is a very relevant question because... I'm sorry I'm eating now, I'm just absolutely starving. And that is, we're in, we're in this still weird period of time, right? We can't go to synagogue. So are our homes where we pray as holy as the synagogue where we used to pray? There is a holiness to our home. You know that we do more mitzvot at home than we do in synagogue? We observe Shabbat at home, we keep kosher at home, we recite blessings at home. Husbands and wives observe the laws of family purity, tarat mishpacha, at home. Home is really a very, very holy place. But there are other places that have within them inherent holiness. Why? What makes a place holy? And the simple answer is God. Hashras hashchina, those are two words that you want to jot down for this class. Hashra'at the dwelling, the residing of the Shechina, of God's presence. After the temple was built and consecrated by Solomon, who built the first temple, God caused his presence to dwell in the temple. That's ultimately what gave holiness to Jerusalem. Not the temple, not this building, but God's presence in the building, if you will. Take a look at the next source, source number six. Also from the Rambam, Maimonides, take a look, source number six on your handout. Why do I say that the original consecration sanctified the temple and Jerusalem for the sabbatical year? Tithes and other similar agricultural laws. The original consecration did not sanctify it for eternity because the sanctity of the temple and Jerusalem stemmed from the Shechina. The Shechina is God's presence and the Shechina can never be nullified. Interesting. What is the Rambam saying? saying that once King Solomon sanctified the temple, um, Jerusalem remained eternally holy. Once it was done, even though the temple was destroyed, it's not like that holiness then dissipates. Now, it, therefore, according to some, and we don't really do this, but according to some, you could technically still bring a sacrifice even without a temple, because the initial holiness that was created remained eternal in Jerusalem, but only in Yerushalayim. Why? Because the initial holiness, the initial sanctity, is due to the God's resting of his presence. And that, says Maimonides, never dissipates. Question is, what is the Shekhinah? What is God's presence? It's such an amorphous thing. And I want to quote one of my son's teachers, who's an old friend of mine, Rav Amos. Rav Amos explained 
that the Shekhinah is not God himself. How many of you guys have heard that, that term, the Shekhinah, the, the, the presence of God? It's not God himself. It refers to the appearance or the presence of God in the physical world in which we live, where God in some way sort of trickles himself down or restricts himself to become present in the world. Shachain, Shechunah is a neighborhood. Shachain is my neighbor. It's a person who's living beside me. Shechina is the presence. It's the aspect of God's existence that resides in the physical, that's present in the material world in which we live. Now, how, how is that? How is a total spiritual being like God present in the physical world? God's not made up of anything material. So in what way does God travel or exist in the physical world? And um, Rav was explained really on the backs of the Jewish people. We become the legs. We become the wheel. We become the Merkava, the chariot of God. God travels through this world through his special people. And our mission is to bring God and his vision of ethical monotheism to the rest of humanity. And that vision is supposed to be brought everywhere and anywhere. The Shechina, God's presence, can be experienced anywhere. It started in the wilderness when we got the Torah, celebrating that next week on Shavuot. But it has an ultimate destination. The ultimate destination for the Shechina, for God's presence residing in the physical material world, is Jerusalem, specifically the Temple Mount. And we feel that Shechina when we sense God's presence in the world of the here and now. It could be expressed in a cloud. We know that God allowed his Shechina to be represented by a cloud in the wilderness. It could be expressed in a supernatural event, like at the splitting of the Red Sea, or I would argue in modern times during the Six-Day War. And I think that is what the soldiers of the IDF felt. They felt God's presence in this world. When David Sprung, who speaks to our group every year, who fought in the Six-Day War, and he said that the soldiers were throwing themselves against the wall when they first recaptured Jerusalem. He said it was like a boy, a boyfriend seeing his like girlfriend hadn't seen in so long, and it was like, it was a crazy sight. That is one way of understanding the Shechina, God's presence, which is you sense that Hashem is becoming manifest, somehow expressing himself in the physical material world. Another way to understand the Shechina, and another way of understanding really the holiness of Jerusalem, is to think of it like a home. We're spending a lot of time in our homes these days, aren't we? Rav Moshe Weinberger, a great rabbi, um, the rabbi of a synagogue in Woodmere called Eish Kodesh, teacher at Yeshiva University, he quotes the Zohar, which refers to Yushalayim as a base dira, as, as a home. It's the address of where God lives with the Jewish people, where the groom, God, lives with his bride, the Jewish people. The Shlemus, really, the completion of the couple's union. We know that King Solomon wrote about this, like in the Song of Songs, that God is like the groom and the Jewish people are like the bride and we sing Lechadodi every Friday night. And the, really the completion of God of, of, of a couple's union is never expressed until they move in. I was just talking to somebody who was supposed to be getting married and when are they going to get married? They're going to wait for Corona to be over. They're going to get married now. And I said, what really means to be married 
is to create a home together. Yeah, you have the ceremony and we need that ceremony to make it real and to make it official. But the shlemus, the completion of a couple's union is not expressed until they move in. If the couple stays in a hotel for a night or two after the wedding, or they move in with their in-laws, it's not the same. The simcha, the joy of the union is not fully expressed until they have a home together. And everything in the home then comes to symbolize their love. The paintings, the couch, certain smells, right? Every home has like a different kind of odor, a certain kind of scent to it. Expresses a certain personality of the couple. Rabbi Weinberger explained that he was once paying a shiva call of someone <clears throat> who was married for many, many years, like 70 years, crazy, crazy long marriage. And the man was holding onto this little tchotchka, he said. And he said his wife loved buying these little trinkets. And he was holding onto it because it was a symbol of their pure love. And I remember after my mother passed away, and we kept the house for a while in Queens. And my father tried continuing to live there. <clears throat> but he couldn't. It was too painful. The house, every painting, every room, every chair reminded my father of my mother. And that's really Yushalayim. It's the place in the world that God, the groom, chose to create his home with his bride. <clears throat> and that's why we say in our prayers, we say it in our silent devotion, Vili Yushalayim Ircha, and Jerusalem, your city, and we say, Jerusalem, your city, you should return it in mercy. And return your presence to it. Yerushalayim, we say to Hashem, is your city. And we want you to bring Zion back to your city. Because every stone, it's your home, Hashem. Every street sign, every home reminds us of Hashem, just like any home reminds us of someone who lived in that home before. And when the temple stood, every Jew who walked the streets of Yushalayim would feel Hashem's love, not as some sort of theoretical concept, but a true feeling, an emotion. And there's still a strong remnant of that today. Not just because we know that was the place where the temple once stood, it's not just nostalgia. But the Shekhinah, God's presence, is not betela, says the Rambam. It is not obliterated. God's presence is still there, and you can feel it at the Kotel. Take a look at the last source. I'm going to finish up soon. Midrash on number 7 says, Rav Acha said, The Shekhinah will never depart from the Western Wall. As it is written, Behold, he stands behind our wall. There's some kind of source here for the Shechina. Ein Shechina Zazem Mikoltal HaMa'aravi, says the Medrash. The Shechina, God's presence, will never depart from the Kotel because once Solomon sanctified the temple on that mountain and enabled God's presence to dwell here in the physical material world in that temple, even after the temple is destroyed and the Jewish people are exiled, God's presence, there's, you can still pick up the presence of the Almighty. And there's really no greater simcha, no greater joy, because that spiritual closeness allows us greater clarity. There's a minhag who's accustomed to walk backwards. You ever see people when they leave the Kotel precincts, they walk backwards, right? And um, I always imagined when I was younger 
that I would take those steps back and that behind that wall as I was taking those steps back, I would, I, I would imagine, and I still try to do this when I'm in Israel, that behind that wall remains the very epicenter of the universe, the very point of creation, from where the world was created, the purpose of the world's creation, to have this connection between the physical and the spiritual, and that's where God is, to have this place where, as our sages teach, heaven and earth kiss. It's not in New York. It's not in Los Angeles, the great place where much of the material sustenance and even creativity of the physical world emerge. But they don't represent the purpose of the world. Jerusalem is the spiritual epicenter because God invested it with sanctity and therefore everything associated with Jerusalem, everything takes on more prominence and more importance. Stories told of the simple Jew hired by the municipality in Jerusalem to sweep the streets. True story. And when he saw this great rabbi, Rabbi Ari Levine, he was the tzaddik of Yushalayim, he was embarrassed. He put the broom behind his back. He didn't want the big rabbi to see that he had such a lowly job of sweeping the streets. Rabbi he said, I'm jealous of you. You're such a great rabbi and scholar. You're able to teach Torah all day. And Rabbi Levine said, you're jealous of me? I'm jealous of you. You have the zechut, you have the merit to clean the streets of Yerushalayim. And from that moment on, the man said he no longer looked at his broom as a source of embarrassment, but now it was a royal scepter. Because Yerushalayim has the kedusha of the Shechina, has the sanctity of God's presence, and that's why the world is clamoring to get a piece of it. It's not just politics, it's not just anti-Semitism. Everyone wants to keep kicking the Jew out. It's some kind of understanding that people have for the Kedusha Ta'aretz, for the sanctity and holiness of this land. And this Kedusha, this holiness is manifest in the fact that we cannot walk on certain parts of Harabite, of the Temple Mount, because it's considered holy ground. And we're, we've come into contact with the dead and we don't have the procedure today to be able to purify ourselves of that. Lubavitcher Rebbe actually, after the Six-Day War, told his Hasidim to stay a certain physical proximity outside of Jerusalem, because otherwise he said there was a question as to whether they would still be obligated to bring the Paschal offering, because you don't need the Temple to bring the Paschal offering. It only became an issue after the Six-Day War, because previously we couldn't go there. And this is really the last part for us that I want to end with, for us diaspora Jews. Because much of what I said implies we either need to live in Israel or visit there as often as we can to access the Kedusha, to access the holiness, or just to be part of the unfolding of Jewish history. But remember, Jerusalem is holy because it has the Shechina, God's presence. And the Shechina manifests itself not only in Jerusalem, but anywhere we are, if and when we make ourselves into vessels that can receive God's spirituality. Our purpose wherever we live, in New York City or in Yerushalayim, is to live a life that reveals God's wisdom as expressed in the Torah that we'll be celebrating next week on Shavuot. The ideal place to live that life of Torah, of course, is in Israel. Ki mitzion Torah. We always sing, out of Zion goes forth Torah, but it's not the only place. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, famously said, a person is where his thoughts are. And therefore, if we don't live in Yerushalayim, 
we can still live a life of Yerushalayim. A life where just like the city of Yerushalayim, we enable the physical and spiritual to come together and we create a place of holiness and sanctity. Of course, it's better to live there and to access it yourself and there's nothing that can substitute for that. But when God said, Make for me a dwelling and I will live within you. That was the Mikdash. That was the temple. That was the Mishkan, excuse me, the tabernacle and later the temple. Let me into your life, God says. Let me into your soul. Follow my Torah so we can stay close, so we can have a real relationship. The ideal place to feel that closeness is to experience the Shekhinah. It will always be Jerusalem. And therefore we have to visit and go there as often as we can, and if we possibly can, to make Aliyah one of the great mitzvot in Judaism. But if we can't, we support her when she is maligned in the press and truly be a friend and lover, whether we live there or not, because Yerushalayim belongs to us all. Yerushalayim lo nech the Talmud says. Jerusalem was never divided amongst the tribes. Jerusalem was never given to any one tribe. You know, all of Israel was divided up. This tribe got this part, this tribe got that part, not Yerushalayim, because Yerushalayim belongs to all of Israel. Like the Torah we celebrate on Shavuos next week, it was the gift from God to the entire Jewish people. It was a gift we lost twice in our history, but which was miraculously returned to us just a little over 50 years ago. Let's treasure that gift together never to take Hashem's special city for granted and Bezrat Hashem merit to see the final redemption when all of the Jewish people will be returned to Jerusalem in the temple in a redeemed and rebuilt Yerushalayim. And as we always say, Lashana Haba Yerushalayim. Next year, my friends, let us all be in Jerusalem. We see if there are any questions or any comments that have gone on. Wherever your thoughts are, Eddie is saying, make sure th your thoughts are where you want them, where you want to be. Excellent point. Thank you, Amy. Any other comments or questions? He is the Magid Shir of Widmir. That's right, I was quoting from Rabbi Weinberger before. Um, here we go. Eddie, the Yishmaelim also take their shoes off for its feel. Is that the same reason? It might be. I'm not exactly sure why Muslims pray without their shoes. Some believe that has to do with connecting, being as connected as possible, nothing separating us from uh, places of holiness and sanctity. I'm not sure why the Muslims do it, but it could be for the same reason. I'll do a little research, perhaps. Um, but this is a very, very important topic, and I wanted to share with this with you. Tonight is Yom Yishalayim. Tomorrow is Yom Yishalayim. Make sure tomorrow, as part of your prayers, you insert the Hallel. Open up a prayer book and put in the Hallel, because we should praise Hashem for enabling us to be back in Yerushalayim and to be able to access all of that wisdom and spirituality and to be connected to the Shekhinah. And we can be more connected to the Shekhinah. And we pay homage to the IDF, to the soldiers who liberated Jerusalem and reunited it and brought it back into Jewish hands so we could have that spiritual connection like we've had for thousands of years. Please God, Yerushalayim should always stay with the Jewish people, and we should always use it to access the highest possible levels of Kedushan. Remember, Jerusalem was never separated from one tribe to the next. It belongs to us all. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow with some great Parsha insights. Parshat Bamidbar. 
as we start a new of the five books of Moses. Happy Yom Yerushalayim tonight and tomorrow. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.